This is Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg Radio is everywhere. Always accurate and precise. Bloomberg's really one of the places that's reporting facts. Your communication capabilities are wonderful for our business. I'm Denise Pellegrini, and on this weekend edition of Bloomberg Best, North Carolina Governor Doug Burgum on why he's trying to snag the Republican nomination for president. Obviously, I'm running, but I'm running to beat Joe Biden. Another GOP hopeful, former Texas Congressman Will Hurd, on why he's refusing to kiss the ring of former President Trump. You can't kiss the behind of the of your opponent. That's not a winning strategy. The CEO of Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing pitches investing more in China. China represents 18% of the global GDP. And the CEO of Ralph Lauren on building an even more luxurious luxury brand. I don't think there's a limit as long as we do a good job on elevating the product. Bloomberg Best, Bloomberg's best stories of the week. Powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world. All right, we're going to start here with U.S. politics. We've got a lot going on. Then we'll move on to luxury brands and on what's happening in China as well. But we'll start with the GOP because the Republican presidential primary debate is headed our way this coming week. And we had a chance to hear from some of the GOP candidates, including former Texas Congressman Will Hurd, with Bloomberg's Anne-Marie Hordern and Kaylee Lines. And they kick things off here by asking Hurd about that RNC required pledge to support the Republican nominee, whoever that turns out to be. Check this out. I said I'm not going to sign the pledge um, as is. My issue is not with not supporting the Republican nominee. It's that I do not plan on supporting uh, Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump's running for president in order to stay out of jail, mm-hmm. um, not to make America great again. And so that's been, been my concern since the, since the very beginning, and I'll be sticking to that. Well, Congressman Ronna McDaniel of the RNC has said this pledge really is a beat Biden pledge. So if the scenario is it's Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, would you really like to see Joe Biden be beat? What's the lesser of two evils for you? Well, that's a future scenario. The scenario right now is going to be Will Hurd versus Joe Biden. That's what we're working towards, and that's what I'm focused on. Uh, that's why uh, we're continuing to to hit those requirements. And if your viewers go to HurdForAmerica.com, they can help me out and meet those requirements by donating at least $1. Uh, but my, my focus is fulfilling that requirements and getting ready for a debate. The other issue, of course, is not just that the former president is leading in the polls, but he has the biggest name ID across the nation. Um, name ID that I know that you're still trying to get that recognition for. If you don't make the debate, how are you going to move the needle to try to get that national recognition? Well, the, the, the reality is running for president is not one election. It's 57 elections, the, all the states and, and the U.S. territories. And, you know, a, a, a state like New Hampshire, which is, is the first in the nation primary, uh, it's, the, it's one-fifth the size of my, my old congressional district. Um, they appreciate a dark horse candidate like me. Uh, but, again, my, my goal is to be on the debate stage, continue to grow a name ID. You know, I'm a startup, right? And the way that a startup is... Is successful is have the right product market fit. Um, that starts by understanding who your customers are and who your customers aren't. Um, being able to live off the land and have a level of simplicity within your organization in order for you to scale. I do want to ask you, though, what you expect to see on that debate stage. We're now seeing trove of documents. The New York Times is reporting about Ron DeSantis' team and what their advice to the governor of Florida is take a sledgehammer against Mr. Ramaswamy 
and to defend Donald Trump. Why are none of your colleagues willing to say what you're willing to say to hit the man that is directly in front of them? If politics was a, a sport, why are they playing for the, the main individual they're up against? Well, first and foremost, they're afraid. They're, they're scared. And, and I would say that if you're not afraid to take on Donald Trump and be honest uh, about Donald Trump, then you're not prepared to be president of the United States. And uh, the fact that this, this treasure trove of documents comes out also shows the shambles that the DeSantis campaign is in, is that he has to have his super PAC in order to help prepare him uh, for the debate. Um, this is a flawed strategy. Listen, I'm not a, a, a political, I'm not a political a scientist. However, I've won some really tough elections that nobody uh, thought I could win. And, and I've won at a time when um, tens of millions of dollars of negative advertising was dropped on my head. Here's one thing I learned in all this. You can't kiss the behind of, the, of your opponent. That's not a winning strategy. And, and why they're, they're doing this, again, they're afraid. Um, they do not understand who, who they're supposed to be talking to. And I think they believe that all the legal challenges that Donald Trump has, all the legal bills um, that he has, that for some reason he's not going to uh, continue with his campaign. I think that's a flawed strategy. And if we want to get done and be done with Donald Trump, we have to beat him in a primary uh, once and for all. And that's what we're uh, trying to do. And, and that's why um, I decided to run for, for president. You obviously are coming to us today from Texas, where you herald from. The issue of the border in particular. Sure. Why, as president, if you were president, could we actually see something material when it comes to a bipartisan effort to address the issue of the border come together when we have seen it tried and failed so many times before? The last piece of bipartisan legislation that passed on border security or was, was even drafted on border security, I drafted it uh, with Pete Aguilar for, from, from California. Uh, we need someone who actually understands uh, the border and is not just interested in talking tough. Uh, just quickly here. Do you think Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas should be impeached? Is that a proper course of action to pursue, given what you just said about the border? Um, I, I, think, I think the Secretary of Homeland Security should be fired. If Joe Biden is serious about Homeland Security and if he's serious about trying to solve this, this humanitarian crisis, then the first thing he needs to do is fire Mayorkas and start listening to the men and women um, But if he doesn't, patrol. should Congress impeach him? Um, look, Congress, in my opinion, an impeachment is a violation of the law. Um, is, is there laws that are not being enforced? I, I can make an argument that the way they're treating all asylum seekers, anybody coming to the country as an asylum seeker, um, but I think the, the right course of action right now is for Congress to be working together on what a plan is, and I think Joe Biden should fire Mayorkas and start over in order to show that he recognizes and accepts um, that this is a humanitarian crisis. And that was former Texas Congressman Will Hurd with Bloomberg's Anne-Marie Hordern and Kaylee Lines on our Balance at Power podcast. And Anne-Marie and Kaylee, they also caught up with North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum about why he doesn't think former President Trump should be the GOP candidate. Let's listen in. Governor, thank you so much for your time. You've worked hard to not make the 2024 presidential election about the former president, but he is the front runner and the de facto standard bearer of your party. He also held the job at one point. So, why shouldn't it be him? You know, I've come from the private sector. I spent 30 years in the private sector uh, before I got in, before I had the opportunity. My first job I ever ran for in politics was the governor of North Dakota. But uh, I know that uh, if you were, you know, and I've been a uh, 
corporate officer or CEO or chairman of public companies for 20 years straight, right up until the day before I became governor. If we had a really open, if we had a key position available in the company, uh, and even if you had somebody that had worked for you before, or maybe they'd held the position before, then hey, have a have a big interview pool, have have a large group of candidates because competition's great. It's great for the Republican Party. It's great for the country. It's great when companies are trying to fill key positions. And this, of course, uh, in many ways, the most important job in our country. And so uh, giving Republicans a choice next January when the voting starts, uh, I think is fantastic. And so uh, I've, I've been on the record saying, I don't think the field is too big. I mean, if this is the most important job in the world and you had 12 people applied and maybe only seven or eight are going to make it through the first hurdle, seems like a pretty small pool. In the private sector, we'd been reposting. Right. But if this was a sport, you'd obviously be going against the individual that's leading the way. And a lot of people on the debate stage are not willing to go there. I'm guessing, though, if you thought former President Trump did a good job, you wouldn't be running yourself. Well, as someone who uh, supported President Trump and his policies uh, uh, during the the four years he was in office were very positive for North Dakota. Uh, But obviously I'm running, but I'm running I'm running to beat Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden is wrong. He's wrong on the economy. He's wrong on energy policy and he's wrong on national security. And these things are hurting every American. So our reason for running is to improve the life of every American, bring out the best of America. And we, we we're doing that in North Dakota. We know we can do that in the country. Well, the path to Joe Biden goes through the front runner, theoretically. Governor, are you preparing to go after Donald Trump at the debate next week? Well, we've got a very different spot. As you've noted, among the right now, there's uh, sev- either going to be seven or eight people on the debate stage. We're the least well known of any of those folks that, you know, but I'd love to quote, quote George Will. Uh, you know, he wrote an article that said this is the most qualified presidential candidate you've never, ever heard of, meaning talking about, about myself. <laughs> and so we've got a job that's different. I mean, if you've held national office, if you've run for president before, if you've been a pundit on a national cable channel, uh, if you've been a governor of a state next to a large metro with national press, you've got 100% name recognition. We've got very low name recognition. So part of our job next week, I know when I was in the private sector, when we were doing a startup, you know, I came from a town of 300 people. Uh, my dad passed away when I was a freshman in high school. I got a little bit of farm ground, mortgaged that. That became the seed capital for Great Plains Software. We built that into a company that uh, went public 14 years later. Uh, we got a, we had a fabulous run as a public company, got acquired by Microsoft for $1.1 billion. I stayed there for seven years uh, leading Microsoft Business Solutions. Satya Nadella, uh, a friend, was a direct report of mine during the entire time that I was there. But I know one thing, when, when you're in that, when we're in that business, we never came out when we were the little guy, when we were the startup, we didn't come out and start attacking the market leader. We had to tell customers what we did and why our product was better. And it's the same thing here. Right now at this stage of the game and with this many candidates, uh, we got to keep just telling people who we are and what we can do for this country. And that was North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum with us there with Bloomberg's Anne-Marie Hordern and Kaylee Lines on our Balance of Power podcast. And coming up, Ralph Lauren aspires to an even higher level of luxury. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Denise Pellegrini. And if it seems to you like luxury goods are getting even more expensive lately, well... Right, especially if you take a company like Ralph Lauren and look at that closely, because the company has raised prices an average 80% since 2018. It's aiming to boost its brand and become really a true lifestyle luxury company. 
And Ralph Lauren President and CEO Patrice Levey, he talks about the future of the company in this extended interview with our Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix on Leaders with Lacroix. Let's listen in. When you look at pricing, you've also mm. been able to really elevate um, the, the brand by increasing prices. Is there a limit to how much you know you can increase prices by before it hurts demand? Our <laughs> average unit retail indeed is up about all close to 80% now since we started on this journey. Uh, short answer is I don't think there's a limit as long as we do a good job on elevating the product, elevating the storytelling, elevating the environment, making sure that the consumer sees the value, and they have so far, our value perception actually are the highest they've been since we've been tracking it. But the onus is on us to make sure that we are able to provide this consistent elevation. As the consumer sees it, then that'll support the continued growth of average unit retail. Talk to me about China. Yes. So China has a huge potential, but it's actually still quite a small market for you. It is still small for us. Yeah, huge short, mid and long term potential for us. So it's about 6% of the company today. That's double what it was uh, three, four years ago, but still in absolute quite small when you look at the penetration of the Chinese business for some of the best luxury players in the industry that are 20, 30, 40%. So I'm excited about the opportunities and the runway. What's really uh, energizing for us in China is how the brand is connecting with that younger consumer and that more elevated consumer. I mean, we sell, uh, oddly enough, but I think it's the result of all the elevation work the teams have done. Our, our most elevated products we sell best in China. We have the best gender balance, as, yep. as uh, I believe you know, most of our business historically has been more men. Yep. In China, it's a good balance, men, women. And it's a relatively young consumer, late 20s, early 30s. So it's, a good, it's actually a good example for us for the rest of the world. We're yep. being very deliberate in our approach in China. So not, we could grow faster, yep. but we want to do it in a quality way. So we're building the brand. So that serves us well five years from now, ten years from now. But I'm very excited about uh, just because more generally Asia and China. So but are, are you worried that, that you dilute the brand if you become too big yes. in China too quickly? Yes, I think the notion of desirability is critical yeah. for this industry. And there is some element of exclusivity that's important mm -hmm. to support it. And I think that's why we pulled back in the U.S., where we felt like we had over-distributed. And, okay. uh, and become, to some extent, ubiquity is, can, can be a challenge in the luxury space. Yeah. Not to some extent, it is a challenge is in the luxury space and you want to stay unique and special. That's what we're building in markets like China and even as we look ahead to markets like India, which are promising for the future, yeah. being very deliberate on planting the right foundation so we can build from there with the right image perception. So the, the world is changing. We talk about AI all the time. We talk, of course, about sustainability and the need for fashion companies to do more. Yes. How much time do you spend thinking about sustainability? A lot. And I'll tell you why. I go back to our conversation on purpose earlier, right? Inspire the dream of a better life through timelessness um, and, and uh, authentic style. Timelessness and sustainability go together, right? You can't expect to be timeless if we're run out of resources. So for me, uh, sustainability is not a side activity. It's not uh, a reaction to external pressure. It's core to who we are, what we stand for. And to a very strong extent, it's about future-proofing our business, right? You need to focus on sustainability to recruit. Yeah. More and more, the, that younger consumer we're talking about, they want to work for companies that care about this planet, that do more than just kind of generate revenue and, and profit. You need sustainability to attract consumers. More and more, including that younger consumer, they care deeply about what are you doing differently? Yeah. How are you making a difference? Yeah. Investors, particularly in Europe, more and more place value on what you're doing in sustainability. 
Many of our partners have expectations uh, on sustainability. What does that look like for, for a, a luxury lifestyle company? Ah, so for us, it's multidimensional. Um, right now, we're putting a lot of emphasis on circularity. Mm -hmm. And I actually think if we're able to shift the business model in fashion from linear to circular, that's probably one of the biggest changes we can make that has the greatest impact. Now, obviously, that's a total ecosystem you have to impact, but it's to give you examples. It's innovating how we design. So we've just launched a, the first cradle-to-cradle -cradle certified cashmere sweater. It's innovating in materials. It's innovating in, with the processors. There's a company called Reverso in Italy, for example, that helps us with recycling yep. cashmere. And then it's leveraging industry scale, because I think in sustainability, we can't go it alone. So, Patrick, do you sell differently to the Chinese that, than you do to the, to the American consumers? In, in terms of lifestyle, or is it still the, the, the similar lifestyle? I think the fundamentals of our lifestyles and the different kind of movies that, yep. that we showcase, different stories that we tell are pretty consistent. Um, if anything, just in the way that consumers kind of dress and engage with fashion brands, on average, this is a generalization, but on average, the Chinese consumer, just like the Japanese or Korean consumer, tends to be more elevated and sophisticated in, in the, the types of styles that they put together. Yep. So that informs part of our buy and our product, but fundamentally... So what, more innovative, more, it's, it's not necessarily more edgy, it's more no, luxurious. No, it's, it's more, more luxurious, yeah. It's, it's actually more, uh, more elevated and, and more luxurious. Yeah. I mean, what, what's amazing is also there seems to be a trend, and you may, may be one of the first ones, to you know, get chief executives from parts of the industry that mm. weren't luxury and fashion, that were actually consumer products. I, is there a parallel? Do, do, you know, do consumer products, chief, chief executives do better than luxury? Oh, that's a big statement. A I'm big not going <laughs> to answer that question directly. Um, you know, this trend started in beauty, actually. If you kind of rewind the tapes, beauty is where you started to see CPG consumer uh, uh, professionals kind of come oh, in yeah. first. And now we're seeing that in, in the fashion world. Um, I think at the end of the day, success in this industry is getting the balance right between magic and logic. Okay. And so obviously the fashion industry, the creative leaders have the magic. There's an opportunity to bring a higher level of logic without diluting the magic and I think what people from the consumer goods industry bring are greater focus on the consumer mm -hmm. understanding the consumer now I think where, where you get success is designer vision customer needs come together and then right. that's where things get, get uh, explosive so greater understanding of the consumer more data more experience leveraging data and decision-making again there's an element of intuition that needs to be protected but that can be supplemented by data. Well, what's the, the ideal algorithm to where to put a store? Oh, it's confidential, <laughs> I can't tell you. <laughs> you'd, you'd have to kill me after. But we, I would have to, no, I wouldn't do that, but, uh, but uh, we, do look at, we do look at a number of metrics, whether that's uh, obviously consumer profile, whether that's competitive yeah. environment, whether that's the type of products that are being sold, sold in the area. And then the last thing I would point to is operational discipline. I mean, these are complex businesses, yeah. right? We develop a lot of SKUs every year, complex supply chains, and I think what you learn in the consumer goods industry is how to run uh, pretty rigorous and disciplined supply chains and just general operation, operations. And a lot of these electric companies now are 5, 10, 15, 20 billion dollars, right? The level of complexity requires great expertise there. So how do you choose celebrities and influencers? Again, w when you look at the, so, you know, you used to say, you <coughs> said we used to rely on magazines, everything's right. changed yes. now. So are consumers more influenced by, you know, by, influencers and celebrities yes. and they use I think influencers has always been part of 
the business, yeah. whether it's the fashion industry or, or other spaces. But it was right? more controlled. Is that the difference uh, compared to 10 I years ago? I think it was more, you're right, it was l less spokespeople um, and now you have a much broader palette. Yeah. For us, what's critical is authenticity. So the, the concept of I'm going to write you a big check, for instance, today and you're going to talk about us and then tomorrow yeah. you're going to show up on a competitive brand because you got another big check. That's, we're not interested in that. And that was Ralph Lauren, President and CEO Patrice Louvet, with Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix on Leaders with Lacroix. And coming up, Hong Kong Exchange and Clearing CEO on prospects for his business, plus why Morgan Stanley is cutting its China growth forecast right now. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Denise Pellegrini and Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Well, it missed its profit estimates in the second quarter due to sluggish trading and a slow pace of IPOs as well. And Bloomberg's Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz had a chance to talk with Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing CEO Nicholas Aguzin. And they kicked things off here, asking Aguzin whether the government there could lower the stamp duty to boost trading. Check this out. Uh, hi, Jonathan. Good, good to be here. Um, it's, it, it's, you know, the, the, the thing that we're most excited about is about what we, we've been doing in terms of making our market more accessible, making sure that we continue lowering our costs. We cannot manage the uh, stamp duty. I mean, what we've been doing is we lower the trading tariff uh, for a lot of our participants. And, and what we're seeing is that the market is, is very vibrant on the derivative side and a little bit softer on the cash side. But as, as you know, the, our results were up 31% on a net income basis. So we're very glad about that. You can't do anything about it, but have you spoken to the relevant authorities on the issue? Uh, the, I mean, the, uh, the, the, we, we co we're constantly talking to all policymakers about how to improve our markets, how to make sure that we, we make it more vibrant. Uh, the, the, that, that decision is something that they do it on themselves and, and they take into account all the different factors in terms of like the, uh, the benefits that there may be, pros, cons, etc. You'll forgive and, me for labouring the we, point and jumping we, back we, in, Nicholas, just, but you know, give, if we could answer a little bit more clearly as to one, whether you've had that conversation and two, whether you think it would make a difference. It's just a, a yes or no. Has that conversation taken place? Yeah, we, 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 we are not currently engaged in any conversation. Right now, there, there is a larger question as you talk to clients, you emphasize what you are doing. Do you get a lot of questions around what you're not going to be able to control in terms of what the authorities are going to do, whether it's limiting how much you can sell versus buy or what kind of free market parameters are put around share trading? Yeah, Hong Kong is a very international market, as you all know. There's no restriction in the flow of capital. I mean, we're very um, uh, exposed to like all the activities that happen around the world. And, and therefore, I mean, it's the same as like most markets around, around the world. So um, free flow of capital 
access to information, free access to information, and, and what we want to do is to make sure that we continue connecting East and West. That's our core objective, and that's what we've been doing and improving in our market. How much are you seeing companies and, uh, frankly, investment banks shift to Singapore, which is something that we keep hearing about as uh, an alternative to Hong Kong just as it gets more connected to mainland China? Yeah, I, I, I do think that um, during the COVID period, it was a, a, a challenging period uh, for Hong Kong. Uh, at this point, I mean, we, I'm, I'm, I'm not seeing a lot of that. I mean, on the contrary, I, I do see a lot of people that are returning with the, with the new um, availability of flights and, and being able to move around. We're seeing a lot of visitors come in and we're seeing more and more people coming into Hong Kong. International bankers are coming here, finance companies, hedge funds, etc. So we are seeing this you know, as a much more vibrant environment compared with the last two years. Five years ago, ten years ago, a lot of the bankers, the international bankers who came to Hong Kong were from the U.S., from the United Kingdom. Has that demographic shifted? Are you seeing more from other places that are outside of the main European and U.S. markets? Yeah, we, we, we are seeing people come from all over the world. I'll give the example. Last year, we, we hired our CFO at the Hong Kong Stock Exchange that came from Brazil. He used to be the, the CFO of B3. So, so people are coming from Southeast Asia, from, from, from the Americas, Europe. And so the, the, the demographic continues to be very international in Hong Kong with people coming from all over the world. Nicholas, you're going to love me by the end of this conversation, but I just want to ask another question, if that's okay. We're reporting that Chinese authorities have asked some that's funds, right. some investment funds in China this week to avoid being net sellers of equities. Can I just ask you if you're familiar with that request? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not aware of any of that. And um, essentially, you know, our role is to have like robust, transparent markets in Hong Kong. You can come and hedge exposure, whether it's buying, selling, totally free market and, and, and totally available for investors to, to hedge their exposures, whether it's a net short or a net sell. There is a belief at the moment that investing in China is becoming more difficult because of a lack of transparency. We've talked about the youth unemployment rate no longer being published. There are official reasons for that, and there are reasons that the majority of people that we speak to believe, which is that it's high and they don't want to report it anymore. Does that undermine some of the volume coming through your exchange that would typically take exposure to China, which now sees some of these issues as, quote, uninvestable at times? I, I think that the world is massively underinvested in China. And similar, China is massively invested the world. So what we see is that over time, even though we may go through some periods that are, are, are certain lows, over time we're going to see more and more investments coming into China because China represents 18% of the global GDP. And today when you look at international funds, I mean it's only about one to two percent there's like 60 to 70% of the funds that today have zero investment in China. I don't think that is sustainable over time. Now, we may see some ebbs and flows because of macro situation, geopolitics, but if I have to bet on the long term and, 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 and the growth opportunities, that is a massive opportunity. So uh, you may see some, some, some periods of time where volumes go down and others they go up, and we've seen that over the last couple of years. And, but at, that, at this time, if I have to you know, guess what the best thing is, is to focus on the medium term, long term, and in the long term, I don't have any doubt. And that was Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing CEO Nicholas Agusin with Bloomberg's Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz.
Meantime, a lot of economic news coming out of China on the headlines on the Bloomberg Terminal as we move through this weekend, especially when it comes to problems in real estate. Bloomberg is reporting authorities are trying to pressure people to be quiet about the whole thing after shadow bank Zhongrong missed payments, and that sparked some protests. And of course, we're monitoring developments at Evergrande after it filed for Chapter 15 bankruptcy here in New York as part of legal maneuvering. And Chetan Aya, chief Asia economist at Morgan State, Stanley says he now sees China's gross domestic product expanding only 4.7% this year, down from an earlier projection of 5%. And Morgan Stanley is also lowering next year's forecast to 4.2 from 4.5. Here's Aya with Bloomberg's David Inglace. Look, essentially, I think what we are watching is the uh, fiscal policy response. And uh, to the extent to which that has not been uh, coming through, we had to bring in the growth numbers lower. Uh, We think that the second half numbers uh, will be weaker because the fiscal policy response is not coming in through to support aggregate demand and uh, also that you know the trailing data for the last three four months has been constantly surprising us on the downside implying that the uh, endogenous recovery that we would have expected after reopening has also been weaker than expected why haven't they done more well, I think the challenge is that, you know, if you think, just, you know, take a step back, what's going on in China is the 3D challenges of debt demographics and disinflation. Mm. And the biggest one is uh, the debt problem right now. They've seen a debt build up about 30 percentage points since December 19. And then policymakers always, once they have a product, unproductive buildup of debt, gets, get conscious and pull back on that fiscal policy and uh, monetary policy. Because they worry that if they ease, they will reignite uh, that problem or build up of another round of unproductive debt. But what we have learned from the lessons of the past deleveraging episodes is that if your debt growth is decelerating in at a pace that you have an aggregate demand problem and deflation problem, you do need to address that with, again, that same loose fiscal and monetary policy. And it's just a harder one for policymakers to uh, you know, take the decision as to whether we should do the same thing back again. Mm-hmm. Um, and and as, as an economist, I would say that, yes, you have to do the same thing back again, because if you don't solve your deflation problem, then any other problem will not get solved. And- and that was Chetan Aya, Chief Asian Economist at Morgan Stanley, with Bloomberg's David Inglace. And coming up, we'll have more on China and whether you should be putting your money there right now. Plus that unusual story on the Bloomberg terminal that's getting so much attention about all those abandoned electric vehicles being found in fields in multiple Chinese provinces. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Denise Pellegrini. We're monitoring the headlines for you coming out from China as we move through this weekend. And with some stocks tanking in China lately, a lot of questions about whether now could be a good time to park your money there or possibly not. And we asked Marvin Lowe, senior global macro strategist at State Street about it. He says probably not a great time. Here's low with Bloomberg's Paul Allen. We're still concerned about the policy response that the administration there can actually implement on, on you know, an ongoing basis. So I think, I think there's still a lot of wood to chop before we get comfortable that it's time to, to think about picking the bottom here. 
a lot of questions about the efficacy of what they can do and you know really the environment now um, with regard to demand as well as the property sector kind of keeps us quite defensive on the um, on the region. When we've been in situations like this before, it usually means the stage is set for an entrance by the national team to buy up stocks, uh, put a floor under some of the selling. But is there a risk there that it would just end up providing a, a more attractive exit point for investors? Is that something that you think we're likely to see? Yeah, you know, I, I think that I think that's um, absolutely correct. I think it is an I think it is a risk. I think some of the economic issues that, you know, we've all been made aware of within a very, very short period of time are fairly significant. And, you know, don't forget that we are kind of dealing with a lot of these concerns as you've got the global growth landscape really starting to slow down on top of it. So kind of that natural engine that often comes from the um, uh, from the export side of things is nowhere near as robust kind of thinking about this for the next several quarters as it potentially has been in the past. And that was Marvin Lowe, Senior Global Macro Strategist at State Street with Bloomberg's Paul Allen. And another story that's getting a lot of attention on the Bloomberg terminal about China. Hundreds, possibly thousands of electric vehicles have been found sitting unused in fields in just about a half dozen cities in China. That's after an economic slowdown resulted in a bunch of ride-sharing companies going bust. And Bloomberg's Linda Liu explains to Bloomberg Sherry Ann and Paul Allen why this is happening right now. So China spent a lot of subsidies to try to kickstart their EV industry. And so as a result of that, a lot of ride-hailing businesses um, were started to kind of help bring these electric vehicles to the masses and um, use them for, you know, um, rides and taxi services. Um, A lot of those companies relied on government subsidies to run. But unfortunately, um, a few years ago, China started slashing these subsidies, hitting the cash flow of these companies, and a lot of them went under and these cars kind of ended up um, you know in no man's land and a lot of them have been abandoned but given those subsidies really China has become the leader in EV adoption as well right so what do these abandoned cars then mean for China yeah, so while these you know abandoned EVs does um, they do represent a waste uh, to to the industry. Some of the analysts have said that actually this period um, in China's development of the EV industry was actually uh, very crucial because these ride-hailing businesses um, were instrumental in helping to educate um, to the consumers that electric vehicles are a safe alternative. And at the time, China didn't have a big consumer market for EVs. So having these uh, businesses out there um, buying these EVs and putting them on the road Uh, actually motivated automakers to continue to invest in EV-related technologies. So while these EVs maybe is a a big eyesore uh, right now, but in some ways they are kind of an odd monument to China's um, EV development. So what are the companies or the government uh, doing about these EVs? There's been a lot of media reports about these EV graveyards. And the Hangzhou government, where a lot of these uh, fields are found, they have said that they will try to clean up these cars. But there's a challenge and because a lot of these ride-hailing businesses have gone under, the ownership of these cars are not clear. Uh, some of them are probably still entangled in court cases waiting to be auctioned off. So some of these will be taken to scrapyards and try to recycle their materials for future use. But a lot of these are just left in fields because it's not really clear um, what anyone can do with them. 
not really clear what anyone can do with them. We'll see what happens there. We're monitoring it all for you here on Bloomberg Radio. And that was Linda Liu of Bloomberg News with Bloomberg's Paul Allen and Sherry Ahn. And that is it for this edition of Bloomberg Best. I'm Denise Pellegrini. This is Bloomberg. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines coming up right now.